0: We're glad you're with us today. John 2. start reading at verse 1 John 2 verse 1 On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, <laughs> what does your... Wow. This is Jesus addressing His mom. Woman, what does your concern have to do with Me? And one of the most important phrases in the book of John, Jesus says right here, My hour has not yet come. So He answers His mom. says, Woman, what does your concern have to do with Me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever He says to you, Do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this he went down to Capernaum. He, his mothers, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did stay there for many, they did not stay there many days. Now listen to this, we're going to continue reading. But I want you to understand, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Okay? So he's just turned the water to wine and performed this miracle. The disciples are following him. Now it says in verse 13, "Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when He had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And He said to those who sold the doves, Take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of merchandise. Now I want you to skip down to verse 23. This is the beginning of His ministry. So we've just seen Him turn the water into wine. Now we've just seen Him turn the tables over. Now listen, verse 23. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs in which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. Let's pray. Father, You do know us so well. You know our hearts. You know the ones that came here wanting to be here today desperately. You know the ones that practically had to be dragged here today. And You know the ones, Father, that were dragged here today that by the end of this day will be reaching for You with renewed passion and fervor. Father, please speak to us. Your Word, Your Spirit, for in You we live and we move and we have our very being. Empty us today that we may be filled in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, what we saw in the beginning of His ministry was Jesus at a wedding feast, right? And at that wedding feast, His mother comes to Him and says, hey, they're out of of wine, and so are you going to do something, Jesus? Is is this it? Is this the moment? And Jesus says, no, no, no. My hour's not yet come. And yet... The woman says, Listen, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And sure enough, he turns the water to wine, and the wine is some of the best wine they had ever tasted. All right, that's the beginning of his ministry. But Jesus doesn't seem to do things the way that we do, right? Because it's right after that you would think, okay, well now, you know he's made a statement, people are starting to follow him, now what he wants to do is be a crowd pleaser. Well, he goes right into the city, he goes right into Jerusalem, and he turns the tables over in the temple. Nevertheless, when people saw his conviction, when they saw his passion, and when they felt his power, they wanted to follow him. They believed him, it says. And this is what's so compelling. In verse 23, it says, it says, during the feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs in which He did. Many believed in His name. They wanted to commit themselves to Him. But it says here, but Jesus did not commit Himself to them. He did not commit Himself to them because He knew what was in the heart of man. They believed in Him. They wanted to put their trust in Him, but He did not have trust in them. It's actually the same word in the original language that says here that many wanted to believe in His name, but Jesus did not commit Himself to them. The word for believe and commit is the same thing. Basically, they wanted to commit themselves to Him, but because He knew what was in the heart of man, because He knew that these were the same kind of people that a few years down the road would be shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, when He rode in on a donkey, That same week they would be screaming, crucify Him, crucify Him, because He knew what was in the heart of man. But yet He was undeterred in His action. Jesus was always undeterred in His action. He showed a resolve because, remember this, I heard it said well this week that when Jesus came, He didn't come and then the cross happens to Him. He didn't come and do the right thing and they rewarded Him with a cross. He came for the sole purpose of dying on the cross. That was His mission for you, for me. That was His course of action and His course of action was never deterred because of His perfect character. But how many times can we say that our course of action has been swayed because of something someone did, something that someone said, and because of that thing that they did, because of that thing that they said, well, we changed our course of action and we lost our, what they call, resolve. Resolve. When I say the word resolve, we think of the word resolutions, right? Same root of the word, resolutions. You made New Year's resolutions, you were going to lose 20 pounds, you were going to work out five days a week, You'd made resolutions. You were not going to go back to that damaging relationship that you were in. You made resolutions. Well, what does the word resolution mean? Well, for today's intents and purposes, we're going to take a look. Resolution. Resolve. Listen. It's remaining steadfast, remaining on a steadfast course in the face of foreseen and unforeseen adversity. That's resolve. Remaining on a steadfast course course of action in the face of foreseen and unforeseen adversity. How does this work? Let's use baseball as an example. How many baseball fans do we have here? How many of you have ever played the game of baseball? How many of you, like your pastor, were absolutely terrible at the game of baseball? All right. pastor couldn't even play t-ball, couldn't hit the thing off the thing. So when I started playing Little League and they started actually throwing the ball to us, that was a disaster. That lasted a few months. But if you've ever played baseball, you know this. Resolve is staying in the batter's box. All right? It's a steadfast course of action. My goal in the batter's box is to lay wood on the ball. See, I'm even talking like an athlete, right? I'm going to lay some wood on the ball. Okay, you're staying in the batter's box, you're going to put some wood on it. I don't care if I get a single, I don't care if I get a double, I don't care if I get a triple, I don't care if I get a home run or a grand slam, I'm going to put some wood on that ball. That's my resolve in staying in the batter's box, so I'm dug in there, I've got my cleats, I've got my my elbows up, my eyes on the pitcher, my eyes on the ball. That's my resolve. When that ball comes, now, here's foreseen adversity. I know that this pitcher can throw 95, 98, 100 mile an hour fastball. That's the foreseen adversity. I'm in the batter's box and I'm ready because I'm going to lay wood on that ball. That's my resolve. Now here's the unforeseen adversity. And this would never happen in Pastor John's life, but just go with me on this. The pitcher is intimidated by the person he's pitching to. Never happened in Pastor John's life, okay? The pitcher is intimidated by the batter. And so, what the pitcher does, he does something a little unexpected. You expected the curveball, you expected the fastball, you expected even the knuckleball and the screwball. You expected those, but here's what you didn't expect. You didn't expect that he would use a 90 mile an hour hard ball to try to brush you back out of the batter's box, and down you go. No, you didn't get hit by the ball, but you sure got a little intimidated when that ball was coming at you 90 miles an hour. That's something that you didn't expect. Now, you have one of two choices. You can look at the coach and you can say, like I did, I ain't doing this anymore. I'm done, okay? I just, I don't want to play anymore. All right, can can I go sit on the bench, please? Or, if you have resolve, you got intimidated, but you got back up, you dusted yourself off, you stood back in the batter's box, all right, and maybe you even did one of these things. I never did this. You pointed for the fence. No, I don't know. But you had the resolve you're going to lay some wood on it, and you're not going to be intimidated. You're not going to be intimidated. And here, here's what happens with us. You see, in life, we have a course of action that we're going to stick to. All right? We're going to go the speed limit until that day when we're running late from work. All right, And we're running late for work, and then we're going to compromise. And we're not going to stick with that resolve that we had. We're going to stick with the diet until somebody puts that food in front of us. And then our resolve is gone. It's all but melted. all right. Because what happens is that our action is determined by circumstance. all right. And that all too, hap- all too often happens when our action and what we do is determined by the circumstance. Rather, what we see in the life of Jesus is that His character and His commitment to His course of action were undeterred because of His resolve. He doesn't change His course. See, how many times through the course of Jesus' ministry would it have been easy for Him to say, you know what? They're not even worth it. The fact that Jesus was God and He could see into the future and see that there would be Hitlers and that there would be Assad. The fact that He could see into the future that He knew everything that was going to happen. How easy would it have been for Him to say, I was going to go to the cross for them, but I don't think I'm going to do that now. I don't think that they're worth it. And yet all too often, our resolve is compromised from the life that Christ calls us to. We want to do the right thing until they cut us off. Until they tell us off. Until they tick us off. We want to do the right thing until the circumstance changes. Until the person changes. We were committed to loving this person until they did that. Now, I don't think I can love them anymore. I don't think I can commit to them anymore. But we don't see that in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if Jesus had that resolve, and He was on this mission to seek and save the lost, and to go to the cross, and to die for you and I, and that was His resolve. Laser-like focus on that resolve. Now He dies. He gives the Christian the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, I want you to be my hands and feet out there. I want you to represent me out there. Is that something you take lightly? The fact that you've been called, be it in the classroom, on the basketball court, in the workplace, in the treatment center, wherever it is that you're at right now, that you have been chosen to represent Him. But if we represent Him on our own strength, and on our own power, then how easy is it going to be for our circumstances to come along and kind of of get us off course a little bit? Right? And so what we see in the person of Jesus is somebody that is committed to going to the cross. You see, a normal Palm Sunday message looks a little bit like this, and we've taught it the last few years. It's like the crowd had expectations, and when Jesus didn't meet those expectations... Well, then they shouted crucify Him and they were moved to bring Him to the cross. Today we're going to focus this from a different standpoint as we look at this Palm Sunday message. Jesus had what we call foreknowledge. How many of us would benefit from a little bit of that? Being able to see what was going to happen tomorrow. Being able to see what was going to happen a week from now, two months from now, a year from now. If we had that foreknowledge, what a benefit it would be to us, we think. But that Jesus had foreknowledge, He knew that everybody was going to turn their back on him, and yet he continued unswayed in his course of action. Because he had this thing called resolve that we're called to as Christians. But resolve for us is not getting up in the morning and saying I'm going to do it better today. Resolve for the Christian looks a little bit different. It's called submission. It's called powerlessness. It's called going to God and saying listen, you've called me to live this extraordinary life and there's absolutely no way I can do it without you. So we're going to take a look at five things today that as Christians we need to be resolved to doing as we follow God. And we'll get these examples right from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what I would like you to do is turn from John 2 over to John 13 And we'll read the first couple of verses of John 13. Now this is about 11 chapters later. This is 11 chapters after He turned the tables over. But the character of Jesus has never changed because this Jesus is the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we see here in John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, That he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he listen, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Now remember what we just saw in John 2. Remember when mom came up to him and said, Jesus, you know, they they ran out of, they ran out of wine. You got to do something here. Remember what he said to Mom? My hour has not yet come. Eleven hours, eleven chapters later. Eleven chapters later, he says here. Jesus knew that His hour had come. It was time for the cross. He knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, and having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And that love, that's the love that this author John focuses on. You see, John is the last of the Gospel writers, and after all is said and done, after Mark's said his piece in the Gospel of Mark, after Matthew has said his piece, after Luke has said his piece, now... Probably at least a decade later, John is sitting there and the last of the Gospel messages written and he wants you to know this. He wants you to know how much God loves you. And how did God show that love but by sending Jesus to die for you. You see, it's out of this Gospel that we get that famous verse, and if you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I say that and I have you quote it, but do you know what a pastor's nightmare is? The pastor's nightmare is to stand up here and forget that verse. That's a pastor's nightmare to just go blank on that verse. We didn't. Praise the Lord. All right. but John wants you to know that God loves you, that Jesus is God. He wants you to know these things. Okay? Why? Because of the resolve that you're going to see whenever it looks like something crazy is going to happen, John prefaces the action of Jesus by saying, listen, I need you to know this. Before I tell you this wild story of something Jesus did, you need to know that He loved them and now He was going to love them to the end. Remember when Jesus was at the grave of Lazarus in John 11? Mary and Martha, they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Jesus, the One that You love, our brother is sick. And it says, because He loved them, basically it says, because He loved them, He didn't go. Because He loved them, He let Lazarus die. Because He loved them, He let Lazarus die, though, so He could show them the power that He had to raise the dead. Because He loved them. See, a lot of the times when Jesus is going to do something that you and I would find very hard to understand, John prefaces it by saying, Because Jesus loved them. Because He loved them. And what you're going to see Jesus do in this passage is such an extraordinary, crazy love. And that's why we are blessed that we come in here to come to the cross and remember who Jesus is because the Bible says, for Pastor John so loved the world? No, I don't think so. And you're blessed that he didn't say that. Sometimes my love is a touch challenge. How many many of you here, how many of you have a hard time loving people sometimes? Alright, if you have a hard time loving people sometimes, then that hard time that you have loving people sometimes, you go to the cross and you say, I I don't think I could love like that. I don't think I could demonstrate my love for them while they were sinning that I could die for them. That's an extraordinary love. Okay, so the first thing that we're going to do, the first thing when we say we're going to have five resolutions, the first thing that we're going to say is we resolve to love like Jesus. And I want you to repeat that with me. We resolve to love like Jesus. We resolve to love like Jesus. All right That's something that's going to be important. I want us to understand that being filled with His love and understanding that cross that much more, that's the thing that can allow us to go out there and love people the way that God calls us to. Undeterred by circumstances undeterred by their actions, undeterred by the slap in the face, undeterred by the verbal insult, undeterred by fill in the blank of whatever it was they did to you and however it was they hurt you. However it was they hurt you. There's a passage that we read a lot of the time at weddings. And if we say that God is love, Then we go to 1 Corinthians 13 and we say, well, it reads like this: that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, it does not behave rudely, it does not seek its own. And you know the passage, right? And so, very easily, if we want to have a better idea of what love is and the way that we're called to love, listen, we could read the passage like this: God is patient, God is kind, He does not envy. He does not parade Himself. He is not puffed up. Now, because Jesus is God, we can go back, okay, and we could read it like this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade Himself up. Jesus is not puffed up. Now my question to you, church, you're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. My question for you is could you put your name in there. Tom is patient. Tom is kind. See, when my wife and I were going for premarital counseling many years ago, one of the exercises that they gave us was to sit in front of that passage periodically and sort of like a litmus test as to how we were loving each other. Very often, especially for the first few years of our marriage, when we would read that first verse, love is patient, I'd have to stop right there and repent. And maybe you'd have the same challenge. Love is patient, but I'm not so much. We are called to love like this in a way that is uncommon because I don't know about you, but with the hatred that you see on the news and on Facebook and that you feel in the world today and all of the tension and all of the craziness and all of the ugliness and all of the disaster that we're called to love in a way that the Bible, the Bible commands us to. I mean, let's just talk about this for a second because doesn't the Bible say some crazy things about love and about the kind of love that we're supposed to practice? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This, you're not going to be able to love people independent of your circumstance unless you have received that love yourself, right? And you're not going to be able to love your neighbor as yourself because let's face of it, Let's face it, we know that this commandment, and most of you would say, well, I do love God with all my heart and my soul, and I do love my neighbor as myself. I love my neighbor as myself. Is that true? Is that true? You love your neighbor as yourself as much as you love you. I'm looking at the fan, and, and most of us that go like this. No. Let's be honest. If your car breaks down today, I'm not giving you the Mustang. (laughs) I'll loan it to you. (laughs) But you know, but but are we loving, but but that's the problem. That's the problem. Are we loving our neighbor as ourself? Now Jesus takes it to a crazy, crazy end, an absurd end to our understanding, and he says, listen, now love your enemy. That's a problem. He says, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. You want a Palm Sunday message? This is it. Alright, we're resolved to love like Jesus. That means loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means loving your neighbor as yourself. That means loving your enemy. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. So where do you even begin? If we're going to resolve, how many of you want to resolve to loving better when you leave here today? Because you know you've been loved. Because you know that He went to a cross despite all your shortcomings and faults. He went to that cross for you. He demonstrated that when you're at your worst, you can take your worst to that cross and repent, and it's forgiven because of the greatest act of love that man has ever known. So if you understand that and you say, I want to love better because of this. I want to love better because of this. But God, You know that I'm having trouble loving this person. The very first thing you do is you just repent before Him that you're struggling to love the way He wants you to. You repent. And then the second thing you do is you say, okay, you give me the strength to love them and show me what you want me to do. Sometimes it will simply begin by praying for that person. Listen, when you're praying to know how to love someone that's difficult to love, you'll at the very least be asked to pray for them, but sometimes you might be asked, and listen to this church, because some of you may disagree with this, and that's okay. Sometimes, for that person's benefit and blessing, you might be asked to walk away from that person in a great act of love. Because maybe it's your help that has enabled them to get to a place where they've become dependent on you, they see you as God. Sometimes that's the act of love. Sometimes it'll be something simple like bake them cookies. Sometimes it'll be like, hey, open the door for that lady at Walmart that was nasty to you. It says here that Jesus was going to love them to the end. There was nothing that was going to shake that. So what would shake your ability to love someone the way that Jesus did? You know what it, what it is. You know what that would be. What could happen to you, I mean, when you walk out these doors today, they could say, you know what, I don't feel like loving people. I just don't feel like loving people today. Because I'm having a bad day. We resolve to loving people. Let's say that again. We resolve to love like Jesus. We resolve to love like Jesus. Well, here's the other here's what Jesus does. Now He's going to paint a picture of that extraordinary, crazy thing that He set up by saying now He's going to show you that He's going to love them to the end. Here's what He does first. He's going to go to the cross for them and that's going to just blow our minds. But in verse 2 it says, "...and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him... Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going to God rose up from supper laid aside listen laid aside his garments took a towel and girded himself after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded stop right there he rises from supper The same God that was at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus, who left His throne in heaven, now He gets up even from the dinner table. It says here, He laid aside His garments. Kind of like when Jesus came to this earth as a baby, what He did was He laid aside His divinity. He was still God, every bit as much God, but He laid rights to His divine power aside. He laid that aside. It says that He wrapped Himself up as a servant. What did He wrap Himself up for us in? Flesh. Flesh. The perfect, glorious God of Heaven wrapped Himself up in this limited, failing flesh. Does anybody here have health problems? Anybody here really, really, really looking forward to their resurrection body that God is going to provide for us? All right, that when this body is over, that when this is done, all right, we won't have problems seeing. We won't have problems hearing. I won't have problems getting up out of the bed in the morning because of the L5 and the S1. All right, we're wrapped up in this flesh. We're wrapped up in this flesh. He wrapped Himself up. And it says here, and this is all after He knew Judas was going to betray Him, rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. So we resolve to love as Jesus did. Now the next thing is we resolve to serve. Because the Bible says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so to serve, what he did was, and this should be our... To me, this should be our symbol for service in the church is a washcloth and a basin. That should be the symbol of service in the church. That as you look around, would there be somebody in here whose feet you would not wash today? Would there be somebody in here whose feet you would not wash today? You'd say, no way, Jose. No way. There's no way that I'm going to wash this person's feet. One, just because I don't want to wash feet in general. It's a dirty job. It's the job of a slave. Maybe you could say, well, Pastor John, we're no longer slaves. We're sons. Okay, but the Son of God gives the example of a servant. Takes not only the the example of a servant, but the lowest servant in the house, and he's going to get on his hands and knees. Now, can you imagine him doing this? I bend down, and it's one thing... I'm washing John's feet. And John, well, I know just like the other disciples, he's going he's to go south on me. But now it gets worse because now I've been down and I wash Peter's feet. Peter's going to deny that he even knows me. I really don't feel like doing such a good job on his feet. I really don't want to touch him at all. But now I go to Judas. You just happen to be sitting there, sorry. Now, now I go to Judas. <laughs> now you go to Judas and you say... Dude, this guy's going to sell me out for 30 pieces of silver? Are you still going to serve them? Do you see what I mean by Jesus was not caught up in the circumstance? He wasn't caught up in the actions of the people. He was undeterred in his course of action because he had resolve. It was a steadfast course that he was on independent of all of the challenges that were coming at him. He's still going to get down and wash their stinking feet and guess what he washed mine too and guess what he washed yours he washed yours how many of you here have ever worked in customer service what's the first rule of customer service what's the second rule of customer service all right if you if if there's any doubt go back to rule number one right how many of you that have worked in customer service have ever struggled with that rule? How many of you have ever battled with that? Alright, as a bellman in New York having to go a block and a half just to get a taxi cab for somebody that doesn't tip me, when they come down the next day, it was snowing out. So what am I doing? I'm hiding, that's right, I'm hiding in the bell closet. Alright, I see them come down. I know that it's snowing out. It's freezing outside. I'm not going to get a tip. I'm going to go all the way to the corner. I'm going to bring their cab back. I'm not getting a tip. Guess what? I ain't serving them. Uh Uh-uh. No way. So what am I doing? I'm in the closet playing Pac-Man on my phone. Alright, and everybody's saying, where's John Panico? Where's John Panico? I'll show you where I am. I'm hiding behind the overcoats. I'm behind the luggage. I'm curled up in a corner because I am not getting that brother a cab. There's no way customer's always right. Let me ask you something. Who doesn't deserve this message that you've been given? Look at the worst of what we've done and the worst of who we were. He washed our feet. He went to a cross. It was all about humility. When so often we're battling with pride. Men and women in the armed forces, they're serving their country. They're they're serving a cause greater than themselves. And they sign up knowing that it could be at the cost of their own life. You've been given a message. You've been given the most important message of all time to go out and serve humanity, but so often we're making it about us. So we are resolved to loving like Jesus. Are we resolved to serving like Jesus? Well, I want you to flip over a couple of pages to John 17. I want you to see what else Jesus was doing for them, knowing what they were going to do. Chapter 17, verse 6 reads like this: "I have manifested your name to the men who you give, have given me out of the world. They were yours; you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things that which you have given me are from you, for I have given them. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I want you to know what Jesus is doing right there." for those disciples that he had walked with that he knew were going to abandon him that he knew were going to betray him that he knew were going to deny his existence do you know what Jesus is doing for them right there he's praying for them all right he's praying for them all right what could somebody do to make you not want to pray for them Do you have those people i'm not going to i'll pray pastor john but for that person uh uh-uh. uh 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 I ain't praying for them today. Alright? God's just going to have to understand. Well, what if Jesus would? Well, I'm not Jesus. Okay. He's praying for His disciples. But not only is He praying for His disciples, you want something that's going to blow your mind? Some of you have seen this, but maybe some of you haven't. If you want something that's going to blow your mind, look at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, But also, listen, for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they all may be one, as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be one in Us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. Who's he praying for there, folks? You. Me. He's praying for us there. Okay? He's resolved to praying for us. Knowing the worst of what you've done, knowing the worst of what I've done, knowing the worst of of what they would do, knowing what the worst of what humanity would do, Jesus is still praying for them. He's still humbling Himself on His knees to His Father, praying for them. That's crazy love. That's an insane love because isn't that what Jesus told us to do anyway, right? He said pray for those who persecute you, right? Don't just pray for mom and dad and grandma Sarah and uncle Joe and all the people that are nice to you. Just pray for them and your prayer list will be forever anyway. But He's saying pray specifically for the people that persecute you and say false things about you and do evil to you. He's saying pray for them. Because that seems to be the model that He set for us. Are we able to do that? Is there somebody in your life right now that you will not pray for, that you struggle to pray for? We resolve to love them like Jesus did. We resolve to serve them like Jesus did. We resolve to pray for them like Jesus did, no matter how hard it is. Even if you have to say, God, I'm just getting honest with you. I'm having problems praying for this person. Give me the strength and help me to do that. Help me to overcome that. Start there. Start somewhere. If the person's hard to love, ask God to show you how to love them. If they're hard to serve, ask God to show you how to serve them. If they're hard to pray for, ask God to show you how to pray for them. If you're really listening and if you really want it, His Holy Spirit will not let you down. If you're really asking for something like that, that's something honoring to God. And how do I know that? Because of what He says here. He says, the glory which you gave me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one. And when the world sees us as one, that's when the church grows. That's when amazing things happen, when the world sees us as one. When the world sees us as being unified and not divided, when we are defined by what unites us rather than what divides us, so we at least have to be loving, we at least have to resolve to serving, we have to be resolved to praying, even if, we, even if they turn on us. They were all about to turn on them, you understand? Last thing, so we resolve to love them, we resolve to serve them, we resolve to pray for them, and one of the last things that Jesus does, one of the last things that He shouts out from the cross, He says, forgive them, Father. For they know not what they do. We resolve to forgiving them like Jesus. And just that thought makes us uncomfortable sitting here. We resolve to forgiving them like Jesus. See there's an incident in Scripture where Jesus is sitting around with the boys, with His disciples, and as He's sitting around with the disciples, Peter thinks that he's got everything figured out. Peter is always the first one to go to Jesus and say, I've got the answer, I've got the answer. One day he goes to Jesus and he says, Hey Jesus, I want to make sure the other disciples hear this. How often should I forgive someone? All right. Now the rabbinical teachings, the rabbis taught that it was three times. That's what the rabbis taught. So Peter thought that he was going above and beyond. And so he said, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? Thinking that the disciples will be like, Wow, he's awesome thinking that Jesus would be like, man, he just gets it. A, front of the class. Jesus says to him, no, 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 Peter, you're off by a little bit. It's 70 times 7. And what Jesus was not doing was common core. Okay? He wasn't doing common core. He wasn't introducing an equation. 7 times 70, what Jesus was doing was He was making a statement saying in a numeral amount of times, in a numerable amount of times, a perfect amount of times, you should forgive someone that wrongs you. That's crazy love, and that's crazy forgiveness. Because if we don't forgive like that, if we don't forgive like that, what happens? Does it destroy them? You've heard all the sayings, you know, that if, if, uh, if you don't forgive someone, it's, it's an equivalent of trying to, uh, to kill a rat and by drinking the poison or something like that. I think I just totally massacred that. Whatever. You've got the point. Leonardo da Vinci was one of the outstanding intellects of all history. Just before he commenced his work on the Last Supper, he had a violent quarrel with a fellow painter. So enraged and embittered was Leonardo that he determined to paint the face of his enemy, the the other artist, into the face of Judas. And thus take his revenge and vent his spleen by handling the man down in infamy and scorn to succeeding generations. The face of Judas was therefore one of the first that he finished and everyone could easily recognize it as the face of the painter with whom he had quarreled. Can you see da Vinci doing this? He's painting it, and he's sitting there saying, okay, this is my, this is my uncle who said this to me. Okay, I can't wait. Huh. Now, for all of history, they're going to take a look at his face. And as he's doing it, can't you just see him seething? Can't you see it building up inside of him? Can't you see the pride with which he's painting? You can see that? This is when he came to painting the face of Christ, listen, He could make no progress. Something seemed to be baffling him. Holding him back. Frustrating his best efforts. At length, he came to the conclusion that the thing that was checking and frustrating him was the fact that he had painted the enemy into the face of Judas. He therefore painted out the face of Judas and commenced anew on the face of Jesus, and this time with the success which the ages have acclaimed. You see what happened there? See what God did there? As long as He was holding on for that, He would never have created the masterpiece that He created. Thinking of the word masterpiece, you know what the Bible says? It says that you are one. It says you are God's masterpiece. One translation says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which He has prepared beforehand that you may walk in. However while you cannot limit the power of God, you can limit what God will do in your life by holding on to things and letting the way that other people treat you determine your course of action. Unlike Jesus. We need to forgive like Jesus did. Now, you're saying, Pastor John, you've said some very difficult things here today. We're... A we're to resolve to loving like Jesus, we're to resolve to serving like Jesus, we're to resolve to praying like Jesus, we're to resolve to forgiving like Jesus, you're not going to be able to do any of it. Forget all of it. Hit the delete button if you don't do this one thing and this is the last point. If you're not resolved to worshiping Jesus, you won't have any of it. Alright? If you're not resolved to worshiping Him, if you're not Resolve to making Him number one in your life. And when we think of this word, worship, it's what we assign value to. So many people will say that worship is what we do here on Sundays. It's what you do on Wednesdays. No, 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 no. That's part of it. The Bible doesn't give a formal definition of worship, but perhaps we can start by seeing the various words for worship mean this. The English word worship comes from two English words which mean worth and ship, which means something like the shape, the quality of something, we can see the old English word ship in modern words like friendship, sportsmanship. That's the quality of being a friend. So worthship, listen, worthship, worship is the quality of having worth or of being worthy. What it is for the Christian is us assigning greatest value to the things of God. That's worship for us. Have you assigned greatest value? Does he have the final say in your relationships? Does he have the final say in your workplace? Does he have the final say and fill in the blank? Because... Worship is a lifestyle. It's not an event. Worship is a lifestyle. And here's what happens. When we spend time in that lifestyle, when we're spending time with God, when we're assigning Him the most important position in our life, what happens is is that His character, when we're in His Word, when we're fellowshipping with His people, when we're praying, His character begins to rub off on us. How many of you could stand to have God's character rub off on you? Alright, how many of you have hung out with people or hanging out with people and when they rub off on you, not a good thing. Alright, you got those people in your life too, right? you got those people and when you're hanging out with them, they drag you down. Alright, we're supposed to spend time with the Master. And that's the thing that's going to fill us up that's going to enable us to worship the way that God would have us worship. And so that we're not Deterred by our circumstances that we instead shine and grow through our circumstances. The story was told of a young woman, and we'll close with this story, of a young woman whose life was seemingly falling to pieces. seems like no matter where she turned, she was waiting for the inevitable shoe to drop. And maybe you've had that in your life, where it's like you were just kind of waiting for something to go wrong. And the woman went to visit her wise grandmother to tell her how frustrating life had been. The simple act of waking up in the morning had become a chore. And without hesitation, the grandmother disappeared into the kitchen. Twenty minutes later, places a bowl in front of her granddaughter. The bowl contained three familiar food items. She asked the granddaughter, What do you see here, sweetie? She said, I see a carrot, I see an egg, and I see coffee. And the grandmother's reply, obviously, but grandmother sees something much different. A young woman went to her grandmother and told her about the life of how things were so hard. Here's what happened was, she puts the three things, she boils the water. In about 20 minutes, 20 minutes she turned off the burners. She went to her granddaughter. She took the carrots out of the boiling water, placed them in a bowl. She then put the eggs into another bowl, and then she ladled the coffee out and placed it in a bowl. Turning to her granddaughter, she said, Tell me, what do you see? She said, I see carrots, eggs, and coffee, she replied. She brought her closer and asked her to feel the carrots. She did, and noted that they were soft. And then she asked her to take an egg and break it, and after pulling off the shell, she observed the hard-boiled egg. Finally, she asked her to sip the coffee. The daughter smiled as she tasted the rich aroma. The granddaughter then asked, What does it mean, Grandma? What are you telling me? Her grandmother explained, that each of these objects had faced the same adversity. Boiling water. How many of you are in some boiling water right now? You're in some boiling water? They would faced the same adversity, the boiling water, but each reacted differently. The carrot became hardened. The carrot became hardened by the boiling water. Like I said, the carrot softened by the boiling water. Yeah, wait till you hit 45, really. So guess what happened to the egg? Yeah, thank you. Okay, the egg got hardened. Okay, so let's not mess up the story. The carrot softened. The egg hardened. And what happened to the coffee grind? Dispersed in the water, and it changed the water. The boiling water. So are you being hardened by your boiling water? Are you softened by it? Or is God using you as the agent of change like the coffee ground? Just like the coffee bean. Are you the one that's being, that's being pressed right now, that's in the boiling water right now and God's using you to change the water? See, what we see in the person of Jesus Christ, like we said, it wasn't the cross that happened to Christ. Christ came for the purpose of the cross. Are you resolved in your life to loving like Jesus, to serving like Jesus, to praying like Jesus, to forgiving like Jesus? That will all start with one thing and that is your own personal relationship with God, your own personal worship.